God designed us for life, an abundant life with Him and with one another. But there's a problem. Someone has taken our life. Jesus said the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. We're missing out on life like God intended because we go looking for life in all the wrong places. But there is a solution to this problem. Jesus said he came so that we may have life and have it in abundance. That's why Cross United Church exists, to help people find life like God intended. We believe life like God intended happens when three things are united in our lives. When we're brought to God in wholehearted worship through the cross of Jesus Christ, when we're brought together in authentic community, when we're deployed on the joyful mission that God has for us in the world, we experience fullness of life. Life like God intended, united in wholehearted worship, authentic community, and joyful mission is why Cross United Church exists. Hey, Cross United, I'm so glad you joined us for this online message. We're going to be in John 13, 1 through 5, so I encourage you to turn or tap in your Bible or your app to John 13, 1 through through five. While you're doing that, I want to remind you, you can go to crossunited.org and there are two places for you to click. The first is if you are a guest or someone who's not connected to our church, or maybe you are connected to our church, but you would like to share any prayer needs that you have, you can click online check-in. So click online check-in and that will let us know a little bit more about you, as much information as you feel comfortable sharing. Also there on the right-hand side of the menu bar at crossunited.org is the giving tab. Click give to be taken to our secure online giving platform. If you consider Cross United your church home or you just consider yourself a generous person, I encourage you to give to our church and through our church. You know, the events of this past week have been somewhat surreal as we have seen images and videos of a a mob infiltrate and breach the United States Capitol, drive our elected representatives into hiding in a secure location, and uh, pictures of people waving Confederate flags in the hallways in the rotunda of the Capitol building, people sitting in the dais of the, where the normally the president of the Senate, the vice president of the United States would sit with someone with his feet kicked up on the desk of the Speaker of the House. And we've seen these things happening and, and, and people were hurt and people died. And it was a tragic and terribly dark moment in our nation. And really what we're talking about in a moment like this is a crisis of leadership, a crisis of leadership. And what we see when we look at the world's vision of leadership, we see the world often values things such as strength, victory, and ambition. We want leaders who are strong. We want leaders who are going to win. And we want leaders who have a vision and a plan to get there, who have the strength, the will, and the ability to accomplish their goals. And, and I think the biblical picture of leadership, while it values those things also values something else that sort of modifies or, or tempers or adjusts those uh, impulses towards strength, victory, and ambition. Lord Acton is, is famously credited with saying, uh, absolute power corrupts and absolute power, cor power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, and so what we see when we look at the biblical picture of leadership is we see something quite different than what our world values. 
When we look at the greatest leader in the scripture, Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, we see that though he was strong, though he was victorious, and though he had an ambition and a plan, that those things were not his ultimate values as a leader that those things were subordinated and subjected to the values of love and humble service. And that's really what we see throughout Jesus's earthly life and ministry. We see that throughout the life of, of his ministry and his incarnation, just the, the, the bare fact that God the Son Though he was rich, became poor for our sake. He, he became a human being in the womb of Mary the Virgin, was born into humility, not just in terms of his earthly station, but in, in the fact that he was born in human nature. We see that in his earthly ministry, in his teaching, in his miracles, in his healing, in his lifestyle. We see that ultimately in the cross as, as Christ gave his life for us. Though he was the only person who ever lived who didn't deserve to die because he was the only person who had never sinned, yet he died for our sin. And we see that ultimate moment of servant-hearted, loving humility, we see that foreshadowed in the events the night before the event of his crucifixion. And John the Apostle tells us in this biographical narrative of the life of his friend Jesus about a very powerful and moving moment and an important moment in the life of Jesus and the life of his friends and followers. Um, in John's gospel, which we have been studying for a little while now in a series we're calling The Book of Life, we see John starts in the eternal past of the Word who was with God and Word, the Word who was God, who made all things, who was God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son, the Word. Then in, in John 1, 14, he says, became flesh, became a human being and lived and, and dwelled and, and literally tabernacled or tented among us. And, he, and, and then from there, John the Apostle, John the Disciple, John Jesus' friend and follower who, who followed Jesus at a very young age, tells the story many, many years later of his friend and his Lord, his Savior Jesus from John 1 all the way through John 12. And what that section of the Gospel of John is often called is the book of signs, where Jesus does these miracles culminating in the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead in John 11. And, and we see this, all of these signs point toward Jesus's person and his purpose, that, that who Jesus is and what Jesus had come to do. And we see, we've, we've seen that, we've studied that in this series. Now we're transitioning to the second section of John's story of his friend and Lord Jesus. And that's in chapter 13 through the end of the book. And that is what's sometimes called the book of glory, where Jesus reveals his glory and his purposes and his father uh, in a very, very pointed and, and powerful way. And we see that most of that section is taken up by five chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, where we focus in, whereas John 1 through 11 focused in over the course of several years, this is just a few hours. The last night, or what, what some, some scholars called the called the farewell discourse where Jesus shows us his heart in a very special and revealing way. And, and we see, I think, a number of things moving through this 
this section in John 13 through 17. Long ago, Thomas Aquinas pointed out that Jesus encourages disciples in three ways. In chapter 13, he encourages them by his example that, that sets the tone as he washes their feet, which we're going to talk about today. In chapters 14 through 16, he encourages them by his teaching. And then in chapter 17, by his prayer. And so we're going to spend some time in this farewell discourse over these next few weeks looking into the heart of Jesus. And his heart is revealed and, and the stage is set and he sets the tone at the very beginning of this section in John 13. So if you got your Bibles or it'll be there on the, on the screen, John 13, 1 through 5, it says, Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and dry them with the towel tied around him. What we see in this passage is a very different picture of leadership than the world gives to us, than our political leaders portray for us. We see here a picture of leadership through serving. And we see here a picture of true Christian leadership, true Christ-like leadership. And what we see here is that secure people serve people. We see here in two, in two sections of this short narrative that's, that's gonna we're going to talk more about next week and that is going to basically set the tone for all of the things Jesus is going to tell his disciples. We see here in, in this passage the security of Jesus in verses 1 through 3 and then the service of Jesus in verses 4 and 5. So we, we see here Jesus is secure in four ways. First, Jesus was secure in the time God had prepared. Look at verse 1 and two of the chapter 13. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew, or, or literally, Jesus having known, he has this perfect knowledge of what is going to happen. Throughout the Gospel of John, the hour of Jesus refers to the time or the moment of his crucifixion. He knows that the time has come. God has prepared this time for him from before the foundation of the world. He also knows that the time has come for one of his friends, Judas, to betray him. Jesus knows that this moment has arrived and that his time has arrived. And he was secure in the time that God had prepared. He was secure in what he had to do and how it was going to happen. He was secure in the knowledge that it was time to go to the cross and that it was time for him to be betrayed. We see there that it says Satan had put it into Judas's heart to betray him. Well, we, we see there that, that as theologians have pointed out, that, that Satan can't directly make us do anything. The, 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 the excuse that the devil made me do it is a cop-out. But yet Satan can suggest by way of, of sort of 
uh, inaudible whispers into our hearts and minds, sinful actions and sinful ideas that then our sinful hearts grab a hold of and we claim as our own. And that's what had happened to Judas. He'd already had in his sinful heart whatever it was that had been happening in there. And Satan whispered lies into his heart until he clamped onto them and claimed them as his own. That's such a, such a helpful reminder to us not to trust our own thoughts and feelings so often because it may very well be that our sinful heart and our the satanic lies from from outside are influencing us in ways that are contrary to what God would have us do so Jesus was secure in the time that God had prepared secondly Jesus was secure in the identity God had given in verse 3 Jesus knew that the father had given everything into his hands that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. Now, Jesus was the God-man. In his divine nature, he was fully God with the Father, eternally begotten of the Father, as we read in the, the ancient summaries of the Christian faith called the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedonian Creed, that, that he was begotten of the Father before all worlds, begotten, not made, very God of very God, light of light, that he was fully God with the Father by way of being eternally generated or eternally begotten in the life of God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know that Jesus, the Son is always present with the Father and always present everywhere because God is omnipresent. So in his divine nature, he in one sense had never left the Father's side, but yet he was sent in, in, into the world with this mission to save the world and took human nature into his person at the fullness of time, security again, like we said, in the time that God had prepared. And Jesus knew his identity. He knew that he was fully God and fully human. He knew that his father in his baptism had proclaimed over him, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He knew who he was. He didn't have trouble finding himself or, or having some journey of self-discovery. He knew exactly who he was. He was the son of the father, the incarnate son in the world. And he was secure in this identity. He was secure in God, in who God had said he was. Jesus was secure in his time, the time God had prepared. He was secure in the identity God had given. And third, he was secure in the place God had called. Again, there in verse 3, that he was going back to God. Now, again, like we said, he never... God the Son never like disfellowshipped from the life of the Trinity. God is one being in three persons. And, and so God the Son um, could, could not leave the Father's side. Yet in some mysterious way, the person of God the Son became incarnate and present in the life of, of God the Son, Jesus Christ, um, the, the Messiah. And, and he, in that sense, could be said to be going back to the Father. And in Jesus's human nature, he was going somewhere he had not been before. Though in his divine nature, he was always with the Father, had been with the Father eternally as God the Son. In his human nature, he had never been to heaven. In his human nature, he was a human being and he was about to go to become not just the eternal Son of God, but the anointed Son of of man. And we, we see here that Jesus is secure in the place God had called him to go. And he also was secure in the pathway to get there. He knew that to get to the crown, he had to travel through the cross. To get to the resurrection, he had to travel through crucifixion. That he had to die if he was to live, and more importantly, if he was to give life. 
to his people. Fourth, Jesus was secure in the purpose God had commissioned. He was secure in the purpose God had commissioned. And we see this from all three of these verses. Jesus knew that his hour had come. And he loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end. And he knew the Father had given everything into his hands that he had come from God and he was going back to God. This whole section points to the purpose of God. God the Father sent God the Son with this foredestined, this predestined commission or purpose to become a human being so they could live the sinless life that we could never live, to teach and demonstrate the ways of the kingdom of God, to do miracles, to bring the kingdom into the earth so that he could then be betrayed, arrested, tried, convicted, and crucified, bearing the wrath of God against sin, to be buried and raised from the dead. And he was secure in this purpose. He knew exactly why he was here. He knew exactly why he had come. He didn't have any doubts about what God wanted him to do. He was absolutely secure. God had given all things into his hand. He, he had nothing to prove. He had no one to impress. And he had nothing to lose. He knew the pathway. He knew the purpose. And in light of all of this, notice what happens. In his security... In the security of the time God had prepared, in the identity God had given, in the place God had called, in the purpose God had commissioned, we see in verse 4 that Jesus begins to serve. That his security leads to serving. And the service of Jesus in verses 4 and 5. Knowing these things in perfect security, He got up from supper, verse 5, laid aside his outer garment, took a towel, tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. Jesus is so secure in when, who, where, and why that he can do the most menial and the most degrading of tasks without feeling threatened. The ultimate act of his servant leadership is his crucifixion, but the penultimate, the, 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 the ultimate before the ultimate, the most second, second most ultimate act is this act of washing his disciples' feet. The one who was clean made himself dirty. The one who was a great and mighty king made himself a lowly servant. The one who was God washed the feet of men. Here he was on his knees with a bucket of water and a wash rag, scrubbing dirt and dung off the feet of the disciples. You know, in, in, think, think of how dirty those feet must have been. You know, in, in um, college, we used to do a ministry of my home church, and we would go into Mexico, in the, into the, the slums of Tijuana, and we would build houses for, for Christian families in need. And, and there was no pavement down the roads, and down the middle of every road, there was a stream. And that stream wasn't just runoff water. It was full of water, it was full of sewage, and it was full of all, you would not want to walk through it. And yet these disciples, much like that, the the ancient world would have had these open streets. If you've ever been to the colonial America section of the Magic Kingdom, there's there's this exposed aggregate section of concrete running through it that many people don't know is actually meant to symbolize that open sewage that would run down the streets of colonial America just a few hundred years ago. 
In the ancient world and up until very recently, this is what streets were like. Someone to be in the street and on the street, walking through the streets, was to have not just dirt, but dung. Not just to have filth, but something even worse on their feet. So it was customary to wash your feet because you didn't want to bring that into the house, but only the lowliest of servants were required to wash the feet of another. And, and w multiple scholars have attested that there is in ancient literature not a single example other than Jesus of someone who was a superior washing the feet of an inferior. Someone who was higher in rank, higher in estimation, lowering himself or herself to wash the feet of another person who would have been below them, a learner or a servant. Some Jewish leaders wouldn't even let Jewish women wash feet and only Gentile women because it was considered so degrading. And yet here he is. He grabbed the towel that would have likely been used for washing their hands after dinner and he pulls up his his tunic and he wraps it around himself like he's a servant getting ready for work and they would have been leaning down on their mats uh, facing the interior of a low table as scholars tell us and their feet would have been kind of radiating out behind them and Jesus removes himself from the center of the conversation of the meal and he moves himself to the margin and he takes that rag and he takes the water and he scrubs the dirt and the dust and the dung off the feet of these men who were supposed to be following him. It's an unimaginably humbling and humble moment. D.A. Carson, the great biblical scholar, says, with such power and status at his disposal, we might have expected him to defeat the devil in an immediate and flashy confrontation and to devastate Judas with an unstoppable blast of divine wrath. Instead, he washes his disciples' feet, including the feet of his betrayer. Only someone who was so completely secure could serve in that way, and that is why he came Mark 10 45 says the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. So what is leadership? It's not power, victory, and ambition so much as it is humble, loving service. It's not a picture of this raw power and, the, and a focus on winning above all else. It's a picture of love and humility. Now we're too often too weak and too insecure to serve like this. Unfortunately, Jesus doesn't just give us an example of serving. He served us to the point of saving us. Augustine said, proud man would have been lost forever unless the humble God found him. And this, this, these are the kinds of people Jesus and God have called us to become. Secure so that we serve. We need to find security in the time that God has prepared. We need to realize that God has called us into this moment. God has called us to 2020 and 2021. God has called us where and when he wants us. We, we, we are supposed to be here. We are not here by accident. We could have been born 20 years 
before any of this happened and passed away long before we could we could have been born 2000 years ago we could have been born 100 years in the future but here we are here and now i had a friend in seminary who was uh in his later 30s and he met jesus later in life and was in the dorms with me and i was in my early 20s and he was working graveyard shifts and he was going to seminary preparing to become a pastor wasn't married was worried he would never meet anyone because he was older and things in his life had gone so topsy-turvy then one day he met a beautiful young lady who'd never been married didn't have kids in her early 30s and they met and they fell in love she loved jesus and they started a family and the time that god had prepared was unexpected but it was perfectly aligned to what they needed and what god would get the most glory out of be secure in the time that god has prepared secondly be secure in the identity that God has given. God made you in his own image. You bear the image of God, whether you're black or white or brown or you're a Republican, Democrat or independent or you're old or young or middle aged or you're rich or poor or middle income. God made you in his image and you are just as valuable as any person on the earth or who has ever lived. You are more valuable than all the bitcoins or shares of Tesla stock in the world. You are an image bearer of God Almighty. And if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you've turned from your sins and followed Jesus, you are in Christ and you have been purchased by the blood of God, the Son. You have an eternal inheritance. Be secure in your identity. You have no one to impress. You have nothing to prove and you have nothing to lose. Be secure then also in the place where God has called you. Your earthly citizenship here on earth is not your eternal citizenship. You await a city that is yet to come. Be secure in that city and then be secure here. God has called you here. You're, here. you're in the place where you are. Most of you, unless you're watching from somewhere else, are here in South Florida. You're a part of our local church. Be secure in the place where God has put you. Lean into the community where you are. Lean into your neighborhood. Lean into our church. Be secure forth in the purpose that God has commissioned. In the 1600s, there was a group of pastors um, who wanted to provide a way for Christians to learn what the Bible teaches. And so they got together. They were really smart. They knew a lot of things. They were all like reading Latin and Greek and Hebrew. And, and they knew all sorts of scripture by heart. And, and they, they sat and they, they prayed and they talked and they debated and they discussed. And they wrote out a confession of faith to help people understand what the Bible teaches. And they also wrote out a series of questions and answers to help Christians learn what the Bible teaches. Questions that you would memorize and the answer that you would memorize. And they called this series of questions and answers a catechism from the Greek word catechesis, which means uh, instruction. And some of you may have heard of catechism in different streams of Christianity. It's very prevalent, very well known, and used by, by almost every stream of Christianity, Protestant, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, um, using this system of asking questions and receiving answers to get instruction in this way. And here's the first thing they, th they thought, what's the most important thing? You know, if, if people only know one question and one answer, if they only get as far as the first one, what do, what do we want to say first? And here's what they landed on. What is the chief end or the primary goal or purpose of man or humanity or, or people? 
What, why are we here? And they said, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's it. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The way we say it in our church here at Cross United is God designed us for an abundant life with him and one another, united in wholehearted worship, authentic community, and joyful mission. It's just another way of saying that, that we are designed to glorify God and enjoy him forever in the context of the community of faith. Be secure in the time God has prepared, in the identity that God has given, in the place God has called, in the purpose God has commissioned. Once I heard, I, I, um, I've heard of a, uh, a young pastor who had just started serving a local church, a fairly large local church. And that local church had a lunch in their gymnasium building after church. And after church, everyone finished up eating. They cleared the tables. And then a lot of the leaders, the servant leaders of the church would, would uh, fold up the tables and fold up the chairs. And this pastor thought nothing of just jumping in and starting to fold some chairs and to fold some tables and roll the tables into the closet and put stuff away and and clean up because that's what everyone was doing. It was just, it seemed like the obvious thing to do. Well, a day or two later, one of the main leaders of the church came to that pastor and said to that pastor, I was so glad to see you putting away chairs after lunch on Sunday. We've had pastors here who wouldn't lift a finger to do something like that who thought their only responsibility was to teach and to preach and who wouldn't have done that. And, and, and I just can't help but wonder how anyone who can't serve by folding chairs could be qualified to preach to those who sit in those chairs. Because true leadership isn't just strength, victory, and ambition. True leadership is loving and humbly serving like Jesus did.